Namaste. Today, 6th of February, is a very special day. Uh, it is the day when Shurabindo, in 1893, arrived to India after a 14 years long exile. <laughs> Just like Rama exiled to the forest, his father, just like the father of Buddha, had imagined that his son would be a big IS officer. Big thing those days. He will receive a completely westernized education. He should not be brought much into contact with Indian culture. Because that was the mindset at that point of time. And for 14 long years, Sri is in England in different places where apart from mastering number of languages and uh, many other things, coming intimately in contact not just with Western culture but with Western thought. So he had his own early spiritual stirrings. For example, at the age of 11, Shobindo felt that great revolutions are going to come all over the world and he has to play a, an important role in that. And even before coming here, he had decided that he will dedicate his life to the service of the country and its independence, which is India. And then we know few chains of events followed. He took this uh, uh, ship called the Dupli and sailed just before sailing in one of his poems titled Envoy. It's like a message he is giving before he is leaving. So the last four lines read, Me from the lotus heavens, me from her lotus heavens, Saraswati has called to regions of eternal snow, where Ganges paces to the southern seas, the Ganges on whose shores the flowers of Eden blow. So he had already very clear premonition of what is in for him, why he is coming. And when he lands on in Bombay on Apollo Bandar, which is the place where the ship docks, so he experiences a vast calm. He describes it, a vast calm descended upon him. And this vast calm was the gift of Mother India to Shurabindu, whom she must have seen or felt as uh, someone who is going to play a future role in her own destiny and the destiny of mankind. In that year, there was another voyage which was taking place. That was the voyage of Swami Vivekananda. In 1893, he travelled to Chicago, to the west, and he was carrying the message of the east to the west. He was travelling all the way to awaken the slumbering energies of the West, lost in the glitter and glamour of matter and all that matter, material life could bring. And he wanted to awaken them to the message of the One Self that Vedanta reveals to mankind. And Shurabindu was travelling back to awaken the slumbering East. So, we had, East had lost, India had lost its greatness and glory it believed in the, um, as I said, in the glitter and glamour of the civilization that was developing all around. 
and what was remaining here apart from a few saints here and there especially sri ramakrishna and swami vivekananda much of it had turned into superstition rituals a kind of religiosity uh, whatever vedas and upanishads were there with they were more an interpretation given by uh, certain minds which had knowledge of the grammar but not an intimate knowledge of the deep spiritual experiences out of which the vedas were born and he was also here to once again because he was carrying a message and the message was of a new synthesis a new age was going to dawn and if one word that characterizes shurbindo's uh, life and work and yoga we can use the word synthesis so among the many types of synthesis one of the synthesis that shurbindo and the mother present before us is the synthesis of east and west of course the greatest of all synthesis is synthesis of matter and spirit so a first question is is there a difference between east and west mankind is the same well in a way it is so true uh, both experientially uh, if we travel all over the world we discover that it's the same emotions same essential the the ground is same humanity is same the expressions may be different and what is true is to an extent that's where the difference comes in the basic approach the fundamental approach is certain stress on a certain way of approaching life this is different but otherwise if you go to the fundamental nature if you go to the deep ancient strivings they are all the same this is the common base we all must remember uh, as shirvind puts it that the east had its own material uh, you know opulence just as the west had its own spiritual strivings so this is the ground still we speak of east and west and it's necessary because nature has been trying nature has done this experiment in two ways of humanity first it created certain root races different types of humanity developing in certain ways and a simple way to look at it is that when you make a, a rocket to fly to moon or very simply a car to go on earth you have the uh, the the body of the car made somewhere the engine of the car made somewhere i think matri mandir is a good example of certain things made in different places and then you assemble them together and make a beautiful car so something very similar was taking place humanity was developing along certain lines with stress on one aspect or the other of our complex human totality and this was the experiment when there was a compartmentalization of humanity but then we know that interchanges started with voyages india's thought went as far as egypt there are so many interesting things about egypt which directly connect with the indian civilization including the gods vishnu i mean the whole word nine and me in many aspects but <laughs> In, in Greek, Pythagoras, Ptolemy, many of them, for instance, the whole idea of rebirth. Uh, even Shunto says that Christ carrying the message of compassion of Buddha and the devotional respect of uh, Sri Krishna, and he goes there and gives it to uh, the Western world. So India's thought was being carried to Europe and to, uh, as I said, to to Egyptian portions of the world. It was a thought. which went with travelers and quite naturally people were probably attracted by all these stories to come to india but the travel from the west to india was not just thought 
it was physical. So there were actual invasions or whatever reason. But behind it all, nature was trying to bring humanity together. It had its own way. So also because when the Western thought came to India, it challenged a millennial old way of life. First time it was challenged by something from outside, which was so very different. It was a clash of civilization. And as always, nature when it has to build a very complex harmony, it starts with conflict. And the greater the conflict, the greater the harmony. Or it is eliminate something. <laughs> yeah, that's the way nature does it. Always, invariably, we can say that if, if there is a great uh, conflict going on, then nature is trying to bring a very, very powerful, beautiful harmony. If there is no conflict, then nature is just told, okay, you go your own way, I go my way. So this is how initially there was a conflict. There was an effort to understand each other because behind all the political drama that was taking place. The fact remains that out of all the loot that went all the way from India to the West, something went which was like a priceless treasure, not just for him, but a copy of the Gita. That's how the Gita leads the Western world. And you know how it started taking interest and great thinkers, all these people, they read the Gita and found a wonder and a marvel. And of course, India also received a different kind of an approach to reality. So let's first understand what were the differences and what is that new thing which is going to come up because then only it has meaning. So there is a basic difference in the approach of the West and the East as it has been over the centuries. Things are changing now. So what was the difference? And it helps to understand each other. So, uh, there is a story in one of the Upanishads that Virochanana and Indra, they both go to Brahma and they want to know what is the self. So Brahma says, well, you, self means the self, it is in you. Look for its reflection and you will discover it. So both look for the reflection and Virochan discovered that, well, when I look into the still day, I see my body, the body is the self. And Indra returns, keeps returning, says, but this is something which tends to change. The body tends to change, but the self is supposed to be eternal. And after some hundred eight times, ultimately discovered that the self is the indestructible, immutable, unchanging truth inside us. And that's where we see the two lines of approach which took place. Reality is one, but it manifests on many planes. In the Western world, the attention was turned outside and this has deep significant implications. It was in the outer field, necessary as we will see later on. In the Eastern context, particularly the Indian, in the Asia in general, but mostly in India, the whole attention was turned inside. So while one was busy studying the medical field, the other was busy studying the inner fields, the fields uh, of thought, feelings, that's why when we come to psychology, I keep telling people that look, psychology is plenty in India. You, you can just pick up Mahabharata, Ramayana, Upanishads, Gita. They are the best books on psychology. Because it touches upon the intricacies of thought, feelings, will, impulsions, how we can work upon it. And from there, several distinctive things arise. For instance, in the West, action is important. 
So you judge a man by the action. You see somebody outwardly committing an act which you see that act is being committed, that's important based on that you judge. In India, it has always been the motive. So there can be a holy motive, that's saved those words, something a holy sacred motive behind an outward act, which may apparently be shocking to the senses. That's how we see the whole message of the Gita. So action, if you look at purely the action, it is something uh, which the senses fail, even of a great warrior like Arjuna, his moral sense, his ethical sense, his intellectual understanding, his practical sense, pragmatic sense, all of them fail. They cannot understand why should I engage in this war? And yet Sri Krishna gets him to fight. So there is a basic difference between uh, understanding the self and the actions. The self is not just the body, the self is ultimately the eternal abiding self. So while the West kept perfecting the physical field, in India, what happened particularly, after a certain point of time, it kept neglecting the physical field. In the West, the inner fields were neglected, whereas in India, the inner fields were perfected. So it led to very strange situation, more and more lack of comprehension and understanding. So when we take to another, there are three coordinates on which we understand this whole universe. One is, who am I? So, as I said in the Western context, the body is important. The body, and we may use the word body as the wider. In Indian thought, it is the soul which is important. This is myself. The second is the world. So, what was the world? World was a material nature which is bringing out all kinds of things. Material nature. But India would see behind material nature the sense of the sacred everywhere. That's why it's very difficult for you know a certain orientation of mind to understand. Why there is so much halabalu about uh, putting an idol and doing all this pranapratishtha? <laughs> because everywhere you have the sense of the sacred. Uh, you worship the mountain, you worship the river, you worship the snake, cobra. And Sri Krishna also says, among the snakes I am Vasuki, among the tree I am this tree, among uh, the rivers I am this river. So everything becomes sacred. So there is a divine presence in everything which is what makes the material world meaningful, otherwise there is no meaning. So on one side we are very happy that okay, we have worshipped the Ganges because I have seen the Kamata. But then we didn't care about cleaning the Ganges so much just to bring out that. Whereas on the other hand, the rivers were kept spick and span, but the deity was lost. So the water and the material resources could be used for whatever utilitarian commercial purposes to enjoy life. So we worship the cow. So the cow was sacred, you don't eat non-veg, I mean majority still believe in that. But you don't keep keep them clean, you don't take care that you don't sell a plastic. So it led to this kind of a divergence. Both have their own importance and significance. This is just to show how the two civilizational approaches developed. When it came to God, so God in the Western context was a king. He is sitting on a royal throne. He can't be laughing to hurt his majesty. He can't be coming down and playing with us. He can't move around like a beggar. That's not done. He is a judge. He rendered justice. And this justice is rendered sometimes very based on 
what you have done, based on what you really believe in, you can, he can condemn you, he can raise you to the highest heavens. And the heavens also, very interestingly, are heavens which are in aggrandized heavens of medieval splendor. This is not the originally Indian thought. Puranas bring the simple kind of heaven with Indra, which is possibly because the Puranic writers, many of them wanted to bring something in parallel in the path. There are heavens which are as full of, you know, dance and music going on, but that was not the original conception of heaven in, in the Vedas. The Vedas don't describe it like that. There are states of plenitude, states of vastness, states of peace, states of power, states of wisdom. That's how the heavens in the uh, Eastern Indian thought was largely. And the God was very different because the God was everywhere. So he could play with you, he could be a guru, he could be a mendicant, and he could be many more things besides. He could be father, mother, even a child. So in India there is a whole, uh, whole sect which worships God as a child. See, Ram Lala has come. So worshipping God is child. And then you cannot ask anything because he is a child. So you have to only give. It is a beautiful way of... Yes, there is actually a Krishna sect. It's called Pushti Mahar. Where if God is a child, they, they treat Krishna as a child. And then you can't go and say that I want this. Because that's not the relation you have with the child. You have to give. You are not supposed to ask that. So this is how we explore God. The God, Indian God will laugh, he will sing, he will dance, he'll, he can create chaos, he will be involved with every possibility. <laughs> human thing, including, uh, you know, bringing down the matkas which Makkhan is stored, all these things, butter is stored, all this will do. So there is that basic difference between our approach to God. And Sri Ramakrishna said, on one side we have God-fearing humanity, but what India is doing is God-loving humanity. He is a lover, he is a playmate, and all kinds of things. So this is the other approach. So based on this, very two very different kinds of humanity is developed. And finally, one very important distinction which came up is, in the Western context, because there is a vision is fixed more on the medical field, outer. So when you look at the outer field, then what is the highest? It is man. So everything should be centered. Humanity is a religion in itself. It's very difficult, by the way, for an Indian mind to understand that why human beings can be more important than God. Very difficult. But it is true. Whereas in the Indian context, God is more important. It doesn't matter. So human beings have their place. Only relative to if they can fulfill the grand plan or purpose of the divine, fine. If not, then human. So in Indian conception, we have a god of destruction, a god who can engage like Makali or Shiva, who can destroy the world. Why? Because it is going to fulfill the grand plan of the cosmos of creation, fulfilling the divine will. So humanitarianism developed as a religion in the West, which is very beautiful in its own way, but it misses something more fundamental. And that fundamental is in India, divine, divine, divine manifestation, pralaya. And from that came another view of space and time. So in Indian context, there always is a multiverse. So this is not the only word. So people often quote that famous video of Carl Sagan. 
And he says, this is the only place we inhabit. And we are just a dog. This appeals to a certain kind of mind. But to the Indian thought, it, it will not sound very appealing. Because uh, there is a multiverse. Many space-time continuums exist. And very interestingly, and which is something which uh, is very important, that in the Western context, time is linear. So time is moving forward. So earlier there is a primitive civilization. So as it is advancing, it is advancing more and more. So 5000 years back, if you are primitive, 10,000 years back, they are more primitive. Because time is linear. In Indian thought, time is cyclic. So in cyclic time, what happens is, 10,000 years back, humanity in some places may have been very developed. And when it collapses, it will pick up from where it left. So there is constantly this cycle of time. That's why we don't have a beginning and an end of time itself. Time doesn't begin and end. We can't say at this point time began. So the moment this, so the, the divine and the becoming, being and becoming are all the time going on together. So Cyclic time brings many interesting, now because of this difference, many interesting things. For example, uh, change of seasons, rebirth. Rebirth is one concept which comes due to cyclic time. And because of this cyclic time, there is no definite end. The whole approach towards death and life is very different. Once I remember Punadi, I think, the uh, first person met, uh, the mother's uh, granddaughter. Last two years she had come very close and we share our birthdays. So she was once telling me, you know, that one of the differences that I find in the Indian people and the French, she has the French background. So I said, yes. So it says, you know, basically in India I see there is no fear of death. And this was an observation which is very true. You know, what gave an edge to Indian army despite whatever, because this fear of death. The moment most of us are grounded in the Gita, and but at the same time because of that, that this in medical field, this extremely intensive care where you put on ventilators, when you are trying to prolong the physical life, despite the herbs and all that, this never developed. Why? Because we have another another life to go. So again, this can be advantageous at one level because. You know that you will be given another chance, and a third chance, and the fourth chance, endless chances. Nothing is lost forever, but at the same time, it can lead to a lackadaisical attitude. Okay, I'll see you next time. So, uh, whereas in the Western country, because there is one life, so it it uh, it makes life very challenging. You have to take it as make it or break it. It's in one life, so it has its own advantages. But at the other, on the other hand, it uh, keeps on discovering ways and means to make this one life very comfortable, very, you know, as happy as you can. So these are some of the differences which we see also the end point. End point, of course, you know, in Indian life, the end point is moksha. The goal of life is to uh, get free from the waves of ignorance. So this is how the two tendencies have developed. There are many other things that people speak about democracy and all that's not true actually. Democracy has been in India also. Only it is not, there is no word like democracy used. But the king was there, but he was rendering 
is processed in a democracy. Democratic, as you see in the life of Rama, that he is a king, but he tells all his subjects that look, uh, if you, if, to all his ministers, he says, if there is something which I am doing which is not according to the right principles, aniti, that's the word he uses, don't be afraid of telling it to me. And people would go and bring that message that what's happening in the kingdom, that's how we know the famous banishment of Sintana place. That I need to know what's happening in my kingdom. Are we happy or unhappy? Now, this is one kind of democracy which was practiced in India. But the other kind of democracy, as we see practiced in the West, which Shrivindo very evidently says, uh, its time is over, is that the freedom is only to vote. And once somebody comes in power, these are the few people who are going to govern. And they are eyeing on the next elections. Everything is the same. And so, also because unless you have a very informed audience who are able to understand, it's not just about being educated, who are able to look behind all the promises, all the big speeches which people are giving, politicians are giving, you may be completely misled. It happens all the time. In India, we see it very commonly. So in India, still there is the concept of the king. So people often wonder that why Indians vote for personalities. This is the reason. If there is a leader, if he is someone who Indians will never or they believe in, they will vote. They will not go so much into the nitty-gritty of the promises or the lectures. They, they just keep trust, trust. Because that is how this whole ethos is developed. So this is the background, but now we are entering an age of synthesis. So what should be this synthesis like? Should it be a synthesis where pell-mell we just create chaos? So we have a either an Indian attire with all the Rudrakshmala and this thing, sometimes people who come from the other side of the globe, they try to dress up like that, something changes and discarded. Or we adopt a kind of way of life, dress and everything else and you and you know in the name of unity should be the cautions us that this is not the way try to do it will create confusion and chaos. So this unity must have a base and very clearly he says that I'll read something from Shirdu directly base has to be Easter because Brahman is the abiding reality. If you miss that base that there is one divine reality give other things importance, then the whole thing is going to collapse. So human is important. He says this is a wonderful message of the best that he must take. But its importance is because it is the instrument and means to manifest the divine. Humanity for humanity's sake doesn't become important. So you see the difference. It's a very subtle difference. So humanity does because one is human, so therefore it's important. Everybody who is human, the importance of humanity because it's a very important instrument to manifest the divine. And that's how one has to look at the base has to be Eastern and one has to integrate all the beautiful things that have been taking place in the other side of the globe. And this he puts in very beautiful way, just a couple of passages, just to lead up from assortments. Yeah, this one we already. The same order is observed about good and evil. We look at the inner attitude. There may love only feeling behind the activity that you condemn. 
We continue that. There are so many instances in their thought. The typical is that man is, uh, uh, you know, there is a woman who is, a, uh, who is sleeping with a man every night because that she earns money out of it. But there are stories in Indian thought that she is regarded as uh, more saint like, saintly than a man who is an apparently holy man but is busy counting how many men are going to sleep with that woman. Because that mind is preoccupied with such thoughts. So it's not about physically where we are inhabiting. It's about what is in our mental world. So there is so much importance given to thought control. So in Indian thought, chastity was never a physical thing as we understand. Chastity was an inner thing. So if the inner thought and feelings were not chaste, then merely practicing physical chastity did not help. And there are countless stories like that, which I am resisting the temptation to go into. So this was a very different concept. Then the idea of Victorian morality, where outwardly we have one marriage and here it was not about one marriage, but that inner mind, thought, heart, will, everything is with one. It is far more difficult to practice. So, Shubhita even goes on to say one thing. If you look at the inner life of human being, you could well say that there is none who can claim to be practicing chastity. So, and this too was not for its own sake. Chastity itself was so that we can learn to conserve and discipline our human energies for a higher good. So it was not in its own right and end in itself. Just as behind the outwardly good or sanctimonious conduct may lie hidden the self-seeking of a scoundrel. So there may be apparently a very good activity outside. But inside the person may be very selfish. So he speaks of that. The unification of the East and the West is the religion of today. And we see Aurobindo is standing place where this is one of the experiments that is being materialized. But in this task of unification, if we consider the West as the foundation or the chief support, we shall be making a reverse error. This is a very clear because the foundation has to be the Brahman, the reality, the eternal, the divine, call it by whatever name. The East is the foundation, the chief support. The outer world is established in the inner, not vice versa. Respect and emotion or inner attitude, bhava, are the source of energy and activity. One has to be faithful to one's inner attitude and sense of reverence. But one is not to be attached to the application of force and the external forms and means of activity. So that's how he explains the whole. And so beautifully, when we this passage when I was reading, I thought he's probably writing this few days back. Look at this, this sentence, this, this passage. The reason for this is the ill effects of democracy that follow from an attachment to its outward forms and instruments. Hundred years back, I don't think uh, democracy had realized that dangers. So long, having created a government only favorable to democracy, America was fond of declaring that there was no other country which was equally free. But in reality, the president and the executive officers, with the help of the Congress, rule despotically and support the wrongs done by the rich, the injustice, and the all-consuming greed and they themselves grow fat 
by the abuse of power. I don't know this was sitting in parliaments today and watching everything. As if he is reading the hearts of people who are all around. Now these things are becoming more and more obvious behind the facade. The subjects are free only at the time of electing representatives. But even then, the rich maintain their power through huge expenditure. And even later, by buying up the representatives of the people, they exploit and dominate arbitrarily. France is the birthplace of democracy and freedom, but the administrators and the police who have been created as instruments to run according to people's wish, the departments, they have now turned to numerous miniature autocrats. Since the government and politics are determined by every change in the opinion of the fickle and half-educated electorate, the British race has lost its earlier political tact and faced with danger from within and without. Looks like all this is happening today, even there is force in the past. And that is the danger of problem of democracy which we need to understand. So he gives the solution also. The foundation within the expression without. By adopting Western instruments, we shall be in danger. We have to create in keeping with our own nature and the Eastern view of things. So this is important that the base has to be, the foundation has to be the one divine reality. All else is a structure and a superstructure. This foundation, if it is removed, then there is a problem. It's going to create a chaos and confusion. Then very interestingly, in his message to America, a very interesting story when Swami Vivekananda goes to America and uh, the people there ask him that, you know, uh, we are also sending, you have come from India to bring the Indian philosophy and metaphysics and culture and religion, we are also sending to, going to send to India, Tilaji and others, and Swami Vivekananda said, we don't need that, we need money. Very point blank. He said, America, should contribute monetarily to India and India will contribute the knowledge base, especially of the higher things. Now you see this is and mother foresaw it, mother says that you know in the uh, new world order, she saw India and America coming close together, one as a spiritual partner, the other as a material partner. Because that's how a new world order came up. Now how far it is developed, it will develop, goes back. All these things are happening, but this is how she saw it. East and West have the same human nature. This is a message to America, basically. A common human destiny, the same aspiration after a greater perfection, the same seeking after something higher than itself, something towards which inwardly and even outwardly we move. There is a common hope, a common destiny, both spiritual and material for which both are needed as co-workers. So this is where we have to move. But what shall be the idea and the goal? That depends on our conception of the realities of life and the supreme reality. And that's where he starts revealing the difference. Spiritual perfection as the sole ideal on one side. On the other, the perfectibility of the race, the perfect society, the perfect development of the human mind and life and man's material existence have become the largest dream of the future. This is where we see spiritual perfection, developing in ourselves the many sided richness and splendor of the spirit is what India can give. 
and on the other side, perfectibility of the race, developing the instruments of the mind, the body, life, expression in the material world. This is something which has to compromise, and that's how the things have to join together. And then he speaks about uh, another point, which is of course the meeting ground that others was the point of divergence. How beautiful Indian thought is reconciling the theory of evolution. In the Western world, we see the evolutionary understanding, you know, the story of evolution is about the outer side. And uh, the Eastern thought supplement the inner side of evolution. So, again, there is a very beautiful convergence. And then comes something very interesting. So, another very interesting aspect which he reveals is that. The method uh, through which we basically deal with the words. Whether the future hope of the race lies in a rational and an intelligently mechanized or in a spiritual, intuitive, and religious civilization and culture. That then is the important issue. So that's where we see on one side the approach is rational, analytical, whether it is in dealing with our own self, world, life in general. Whereas the other is more intuitive, more holistic. We see this coming, the rational analytical approach in medicine, medical extreme. Literally, reductio ad absurdum. Reduce the human being to just body, machine. Often I say that we physicians are dealing with the body as if it's a dead body. This is what we don't take any collaboration of support or cooperation from the body. We believe everything is to be given externally, just to be managed by machines and crutches of hops. Whereas a holistic treatment means it's a living body, a conscious body. The body has its own healing phenomena. So we see this turn towards holism which is taking place. East and West will meet from two opposite sides and merge in each other and found in the life of a unified humanity in a common world culture. Shabindra is forcing out of it. East and West meet from two opposite sides. All previous or existing form systems variations will fuse in this new amalgam and find their fulfillment. But, shall we cautions, but the problem is not so easy, not so harmoniously simple. For even if we could assume that in a united world culture there would be no spiritual need and no vital utility, for strong distinctive variations, we are still very far from any such oneness. So there is a real danger. That's why people speak about globalization and immediately talk about world unity. Do away with the nation unit, do away with everything. There is a danger. But then you may see a purely one kind of thought. But we have to enrich, mutually enrich, and not one dominating over the other. Have, enrichment is it plays its own part, its own role, beautifully. The message of the East to the West is a true message. What is the message of the East to the West? Only by finding himself can man be saved. And what shall profit a man though he gain the whole world if he lose his own soul? This is the message of the East to the West. Discover yourself, your higher self, your true self. And if you don't discover it, then all else you may have, but it counts to nothing. 
as a sage in one of the aphorisms that to die without finding the soul is the only tragedy. If you don't look at it, even as a tragedy. The West has heard the message and is seeking out the law and truth of the soul and the evidence of an inner reality greater than the material. But the problem here is that the West is seeking it in its own old way. So it is uh, studying energy patterns, it's using terms like non-dual consciousness, it, it using things like the energy body and taking it to be the soul. But that's not how the soul is discovered and that's not the soul. Yet it is taking a step from the material into the wider, from the wider into the mental field and proceeding like that. But there is also the message the West brings to the East is a true message. Man also is God. This is the message that the West brings. Don't completely discard man in your pursuit for that soul reality, for that ultimate truth, for moksha, for beyond. Because it happens, it's a tendency which grows that only God is important. But God is also expressing in this creation. We forgot. There is part of it. We forgot. People declare it's all Paganism, so people that deeper truth. But man is an instrument to manifest the divine. So you can't cut him off and realize. So man is important. This is a message of the West. Man also is God. And it is through his developing manhood that he approaches the Godhead. Life also is the divine. Its progressive expansion is the self-expression of the Brahma. And to deny life is to diminish the Godhead within us. This is the truth that returns to the East from the West. How beautifully should we say returns? Other place he says the West is receiving and responding. Because this truth was there at some point of time. But we lost it and so India fell through the staircase of Mayavad, Illusionism and all that. This truth existed and obviously positive of time we can't touch upon all that. How it existed, but this is returning to the East, translated into the language of the higher truth that East already possesses. And it is an ancient knowledge. The East also is awakening to the message. The danger is that Asia may accept it in the European form, forget for a time her own law and nature, and either copy blindly the West or make a disastrous amalgam of that which she has in its most inferior forms and the crudenesses which are in India. See, this is a true message but we should be careful how we accept it. Finally, there is a very interesting passage which comes but before that passage I have uh, insight about the third side. <laughs> so, the third eye of Shiva. See, so we all have heard the story. And the story is very amazing. I have discovered many intrinsic senses in that story. <laughs> the story is very simple that uh, Goddess Parvati, who is none else but the Divine Mother, but born to the mountains, she has taken birth upon earth. And she is uh, to marry Shiva. Why? If she marries Shiva, then they will be born Kartikeya. The story of birth of Kartikeya is immortalized in Kalidasa, big Kumar Sambhava. And only this child has the capacity to destroy the demons upon earth. Imagine. Why? Because the demon has asked the moon. Only with a Siva's child I can be destroyed. 
Shiva even has said he doesn't want to marry. How are you going to solve the riddle? So the Divine Mother comes, takes birth as Parvati, and she grows and grows through yoga. She reaches the point where now she is ready to reach the abode of Shiva, the whole journey that you can get married. But Shiva is lost in his class. How are they going to meet? Nobody can pull Shiva out of the his trance except Kamadev. He is the one who manifests love on the vital plane, the power of light which draws all things and love. So he shoots his arrow, Cupid, and Shiva opens. But when he comes out of the trance, he opens the third eye. So the first act is that Kamadev is destroyed. But actually, he is not destroyed, he is transformed into Anami. That means he becomes impersonal universal force. The God becomes in all creation. So it is actually a liberation. So Kama is liberated from the form and he once again rediscovers his formless essence. It's very interesting. And when that happens, then Parvati and Shiva, now they are ready to get married. So the, the story is shown in a very dramatic way, very humanized version. But my understanding is the left eye and the right eye are these two poles through which we see things. This they symbolically represent. One is the material pole, the other is the spiritual. They are part of one reality. But we can see either matter or we see the spirit. That's how in Savitri we see Satyavan telling Savitri that when I plunge into the depths of myself, I found the self but lost the world. And when I went into the world, I lost the self. But now thou hast come and all will show the change. So he sees that she will be the bridge. But ordinarily, these are the two eyes, the two brains also, two approaches, rational, analytical, the other is more holistic and synthetic by its very nature. The third eye cannot open till they fuse and become one. Material nature aspiring to the summits is what is the western civilization in its own way engaging. Shiva in his trance must open his eyes. That is the eastern Indian thought lost in the ultimate absolute Brahman must open his eyes and be willing to bear material nature. And when the two fuse the single vision that all these illusions and appearances are destroyed, reality is released. And the wedding takes place, and Kartik is born, and the demons that govern Earth are slain. That's one of the ways I look at the story. There are many, many aspects of it, but I am not going into it. And this close with this passage: An original error pursues us in our solutions of a problem. We are perplexed by the appearance of an antinomy. We set soul against nature, the spirit against is creative energy. Uh, this goes to both. They are not two. That's why in India, at one place, Shri even says very humorously that people try to do away with God, but you can't do it. Like in politics, he speaks about that. God is too much there. This finds a very humorous passage.
So the important point is that we can't, we say that we try to do away with God, but God is too much there all over and we cannot do away with Him. Yes. Here it is. What the European understood by religion had to be got rid of and put out of life. That's why you see a growing atheism and Gnosticism all over the world. But real religion, spirituality, idealism, altruism, self-devotion, the hunger after perfection is the whole destiny of humanity and cannot be got rid of. And then he says something important for all our secular-minded people to understand. After all, God does exist. And if he exists, you cannot show him into a corner and say, that is your place. And as for the world and life, it belongs to us. This is the mistake. Even in India, this has happened. You cannot do it. You have to evolve to a point where material nature reaches its ultimate perfection right next to Shiva. When Shiva, the divine soul, opens and blesses them, they come together. So he says he is everywhere and with this sense of humor. He permeates and returns. Every age of denial is only a preparation for a larger and more comprehensive affirmation. And that's what we see happening. But soul and nature, Purusha and Prakriti are two eternal lovers. That's why we see there is such an attraction. And now it is grown one otherwise at some point of time. One of the fears that Indian parents had when their child went abroad. I don't know whether many people are aware or not. That when he goes, he will definitely get enticed to some Western woman and marry and come here. Now, you can't stop it because there is a component world culture which is going to emerge. So this is this was one of the fears that took here because he has lived in a certain way and that lifestyle is very different. The reverse was also true, but we don't know whether uh, women were cautioned or not, they don't get in contact with Indian men. But this is how it was that we must stay compartmentalized. But we are entering an age when all compartments are broken. Now the car pieces which have developed from other places are being brought together and the car of the world is being made ready. That's why even the fourfold order, which was very valid at one point of time, that has been broken. Broken because now a new being has to come who will embody all the qualities of the Brahmin, the Kshatriya, the Vaishya and the Shudra. And Shudra speaks of that in Sapta-Chartusya, it's based on that actually. And he speaks of that in the Siddhis of Yoga and he speaks of that in the Mother. That the illumined disciple, the warrior, at the same time, the servant, all these things must come together in one single. So this is a new age where soul and nature, Purusha and Prakriti, eternal lovers who possess their perpetual unity and enjoy their constant difference and in the unity abound in the passion of the multitudinous play of their difference and in every step of the difference abound in the secret sense or the overt consciousness of unity. So I look at it like this, that is a kind of dance form, I forgot in what, what it's called, where man and woman are dancing together. So they come close. And then there is a spin and she goes by. And the man is there dancing and then she comes back. See, it reminds me of the Purusha. 
that the two are dancing together in close clap, she goes far. And though it seems she is, uh, if one were to take a free shot, one would think that she is dancing on her own and the man is just standing and dancing. But she comes back. Because this is the eternal game. The two have to come together and be in that beautiful class. So soul and nature. The soul fulfills itself in nature. When it possesses in her the consciousness of that eternity and its power and joy and transfigures the natural becoming with the fullness of the spiritual being. So this is what we have to learn. That nature also is God. It is He. The two are one. And she is the creative dance and he is the stable basis. So India has, at one point it knew the secret of both but lost it. Because of firewall and whatever reasons. India just talked about the stable basis. And here the dance of energy, prakriti, in all its many sided splendor was worked out. If you look at India even now, you see this relics of this unity. Especially in Pondicherry, I, I keep telling it in, to so many people that one of the things you must watch is how the local women, they make kolam, they make from very poor families. So that richness which you see of life, but we have lost its connection with the spirit. So it has become very, you know, grotesque sometimes. But now is the time when the two must come together, the eternal lovers. Constant self-creation which we call God finds there the perfect evolution of all that it has in its own nature and reveals its own utmost significance. The complete soul possesses all itself and all nature. You can put it like that. Someone, I don't know, I don't remember who said that East is East and West is West. The twain shall never meet. But we can say that they will meet when soul and nature meet. And the self and world go one, true and one. And that is the experiment we see going on in the Both have their own unique ways of approaching reality. One, like Parvati, has done tapasya, mental nature taking it further and further. There is still many steps to come. Because when we come out of the Bible, we enter the, the material, we enter the vital world. So that we see in Western science, this vital energy and all that is stuff. Then into the mental world. And then finally you are ready to reach that abode of the Divine Soul where the transbound Divine Spirit opens its eye. And when the two, when the eyes, glance, meet each other, then the third eye opens and is the unity of spirit and matter. So this, I suppose, thank you, <laughs> is a question or something that we have. Yes, please. How do you see the digital revolution in this whole process that you need to address? Yes. Yes, very true. Thank you for that question. Uh, how do we see the digital revolution which has gone right on to AI? So, basically, both the evolutionary impulse in the last century, and especially last 60, 70, 80 years, has taken a leap. In fact, I would say since the time of the Mother Ashwari those coming, that evolutionary impulsion has taken a great leap. So, again, this is leading in two ways. One is the material. In the material field, 
not only new discovery that we made, will be made. At the same time, in the spiritual field, you see, there is a lot of new ways of understanding the relation of the divine with matter, new ways of exploring rather than the standard paths that we read about. So, spiritual evolution will also be given a you know, boost because of this new energy in, in this creation. Now, who will reach first is there when the problem is that there is a great vision of the mother which is just like that, huge. She speaks about the great flood which is chasing and she is sitting on a boat. And this flood is chasing and she is going and she knows there are critical corners. And if she avoids, then the world will be saved. It's a very fascinating long journey. And finally, of course, she crosses through. So, what has happened in the Western world and in the world of where material nature was regarded as all, this evolutionary impulse has led to explosion of discovery. One of the signs that Shurinder said is the sign that the supermind's descent is imminent. One of the signs was knowledge has burst beyond the scenes. The mother even spoke about the quantum world and she said that they have truly entered the upper domain. proceeding at the same pace. That's where the problem lies because uh, as he has said, all would change if man consents to be spiritualized. So there are those who are destined for the spiritual evolution and children and the mother repeatedly have told us, you should focus on that because not everybody can engage with it. So it's so important because there are few who have been called for spiritual evolution. And they have to focus on that part because, as we said in the light of mind, we are facing a revolutionary crisis. Medical science has advanced and created a superstructure of civilization. And if man doesn't evolve in a commensurate way, he will collapse on the next wave. Like trying to lift the giant bow of Shiva. It will fall upon him. So she repeatedly says that you know time presses. So it's okay, it's a tool. Digital world is a tool, can be used for good or for words like any other tool. But the problem is if the tool continues and in that direction, the, because that direction it's much easier because you are not working upon yourself, you are not your own laboratory. The chances are that it will be very fast. And if man doesn't evolve in a commensurate way, then there is a danger that it may end up destroying humanity. But then as the mother said, now that the supermind is there, you must trust that whatever happens in the secret providence of things, it will all lead, hasten our journey toward the integrators. But right now, one has to see just appearances. The balance seems to be suddenly, especially with the AI, the digital world and the technological advancement and the material evolution, it is an evolution of one kind has taken a step forward almost to and the spiritual evolution is still lingering. The hub of that is always. I think for all of us, it's a great responsibility to raise in this part. Because this will always be few, not many. There is no easy transfer of technology here. But those who are corporated, that's what Shrikito repeatedly said, if there are those who are called for the spiritual evolution, we must focus on that. Because this is much more difficult and they are few. But a few will be enough because even if 
A few thousands crossed that tipping point. Then he changed the balance of the world and the play of forces. That's how I see it. It's okay. It is bound to be there. More discoveries will come. But it's a reminder. It's pushing us against some invisible wall. That man evolved. Evolved. When this thought is already going into the atmosphere. Even 1960, Yudhant, the Secretary General of the United Nations, he said, if we need to change man to make this world a better place, we better do it. This thought has gone into the atmosphere that man must change. Why? Because this is changing at a pace that if we don't change, we will end up, as he says in one of his poems, that uh, until man played with the atoms and blew out, the world before God had time to shout. <laughs> so, that's how So that will take place in its own way. We should not worry about it, but we should hasten our own spiritual position. But not along the traditional lines of moksha. Of moksha the way it is understood. But along the lines of an integral spirituality which takes cognizance of matter, body, life, energy and refines them, sublimates them, transforms them into an instrument of the divine. This is the new spirituality of the